This evening, we want to continue what we began this morning. I want to begin it with the same words. I want you to never forget these words. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Every one of those words is packed. Is it not? Much. Avails. Righteous man. Effectual. I like things being effectual. Who wants to buy something that doesn't work? Who wants to ever put any energy into something that does not work? Effectual means it's effective to its desired end. And fervent. Oh, for fervent praying as other generations have known and as the Scriptures give us for an example. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And it's all around that word prayer. We can do great things, but God can do far greater things. And the way we tap that power is through prayer. God has given us abilities, natural and spiritual, but the great power is through prayer. Let us pray. O Lord Most High, I call upon Thee now in the name of Jesus Christ, Thy only begotten Son, the Redeemer of Thy people, the head of this congregation and the head of all other true congregations. Have mercy upon us now and grant us Thy Holy Spirit the spoils of victory for Christ. Grant that Spirit in our midst that these people might be attentive and retain and apply the things that they hear, and that this thy most unworthy servant might speak them plainly and boldly. Guide me, O Lord, now as we open thy holy word. We thank thee for it. Teach us to pray through Jesus Christ, thy Son. Amen. Today, I know we're not going to get to a whole lot of the mechanics and the methods of reasoning and prayer that to me are the most exciting part of studying prayer and what I've waited for three years to try to organize and put together and present. But what I want to do today, and if I can go home with this confidence that some of you, to some degree, were stirred up to believe that there is a source of power available to you you have not been utilizing as fully as you could, I will be content. Because unless you believe that prayer is a source of power that can accomplish things for you and is pleasing to God, the manner of prayer, the nature of prayer, and all the other isms of prayer that I have prepared for you are worthless. Unless you're convinced that you want to try this thing called prayer. Now, I'm not saying that none of us pray. But are there any days where you go through life and the only prayer you uttered was the prayer to thank God for the food before you dive into it? Don't, don't shake your heads. You know, there are things that could cause a pastor to retire at the age of 30. Don't shake your heads. And yet I'm very serious when I say that because I know the answer. Are there days where you go through life where the only prayer you offer is at the supper table? 
Is that effectual praying? Is that struggling with the Lord all night as Jacob did? Or is that the most pitiful excuse for Christianity the world's ever seen? It's pitiful. It is pitiful. We are not prayer warriors. And I know that you know where that term came from. Good old Arminian circles, and I don't care. The Arminians know far more about prayer than those who teach sovereign grace do in America today for the most part. I have heard recently a number of times, and this is a little off the track, I don't try to get off the track often, but it's valuable. I hear the statement, I'd much rather be in one of those dead churches that teaches the truth about grace than in one of those Arminian churches. I reject that. I reject that idea. Who cares whether a church teaches that God saves by grace or not when they are dead in their practical religion and the effect they have on lives for godliness? I would rather sit and be told that my decision and my works were necessary for eternal life and with an emphasis on those works to practice godliness and to pray. Now, it doesn't really matter because God save us from both errors. But, prayer warriors, Arminian, let it be. So what? Prayer meetings. I mean, how many primitive Baptist churches hold prayer meetings? Listen, Arminians hold them every week, every Wednesday night. Does it become a habit that's rather dead? Indeed, for those of you who have ever attended very many of them. But we are going to pray as a church, and we're going to pray more than we have prayed for the last three years. I am thankful for the opportunities we've had to pray for the three years. Has it been worth it? I remember one service we had where I typed up on a sheet of paper the prayer request that had been answered in this congregation. That was over a year ago because I keep track of them in in a relatively unorganized fashion, but I could put together that list on short order. God has answered a lot of prayers in this congregation. We have prayed, and God has heard our prayers, but we're going to pray more. I don't think we pray enough yet. And I haven't said a whole lot about it because I haven't preached what I want to preach yet. But that's coming now. The important thing I want to communicate today is that prayer is for real. Prayer is not an exercise. Prayer is not a ritual. You know, we rail on the Catholics, don't we, for their rosary. Well, we just leave off the beads sometimes, don't we? They may pray vain repetitions, but how often do we pray vain repetitions without the beads? I listen to all of your prayers. How many times do we say the same thing that we've said five times before? Now, there's nothing wrong with repetition, and I'm going to get to all of that. We're going to cover every point of prayer. Because I can read in the 136th Psalm, the second half of every single verse in that Psalm is, For His mercy endureth forever. And then another clause, For His mercy endureth forever. 
That's a repetition. It's only vain if you make it vain. But we can make, even for His mercy endureth forever, a vain repetition. Remember, the Catholics do pray the Lord's Prayer. But it becomes a vain repetition. Do we enter into prayer as something that is expected of us? Do we enter into prayer as something we've developed a habit for? Do we enter into prayer because we want to impress other family members that are seeing us pray? Why do you pray? I want you to pray because prayer can change things and accomplish things. It's for real, and it's a source of power for your life. Every one of you have problems. Don't you know it? Don't I know it? Even if I don't know what the problem is, I know you've got problems. If you don't think you've got problems, you've got a bigger problem. You're blind. We've all got problems. Family problems. Financial problems. Spiritual life problems. Temptation problems. Devil problems. National problems. Church problems. How do we solve them? How are we going to go about solving those problems? The greatest source of power you have is through prayer. You lack wisdom. As I mentioned this morning, we pray for wisdom. Prayer accomplishes things. Five men. Yes, I'm reviewing. I never want you to forget those five men. Who are they? Noah. Samuel. Job. Moses and Daniel. There are the five. Five example men that got, were they prayer warriors? The likes of which the world has never seen. They could preserve nations by their prayers. They could restore nations, did they not? By their prayers. You say, well, God had already promised to restore Israel. You'll never pray for anything that God has not already promised. By principle. Look at David in 2 Samuel. Why do you think we read that this morning? God made the promise, so David said, Therefore, has, has thy servant found in his heart to pray this prayer unto thee. Why did David pray? Because of God's promise. Those men restored, preserved nations, families, friends, children. And God is the same today. Yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same through His person as the Word of God. He hears prayers and answers them the same way. Maybe not outward manifestations, but the power and the changes that can be affected through prayer are equal today, equivalent today to what they always were. Remember that verse from Second Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 27, that after the greatest Passover since the days of David and Solomon, the Levites prayed for the people. Their voice was heard, and their prayer went into the holy dwelling place of the Most High. Love that verse. I could just read that to you for the rest of the evening. If I felt that it would accomplish its effect, I would do it. I wish that a verse like that would grip a hold of you so that when you hit your knees tonight or tomorrow morning, you are thinking about the holy dwelling place of God and not what you're going to do when you get off your knees and the fact that you need to fix breakfast or get the kids dressed 
If you're thinking about those things, you did not rise early enough. That's why the psalmist said in one place, I prevented the dawning of the morning. That means that doesn't mean he stopped the day from happening. That means he got there first for prayer. Make time for it so that your mind is on the praying, so that you can pray fervently, so that it gets to the holy dwelling place of God. And it comes up as an incense of sweet odors before him. You have not because you ask not. You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. There's praying that's amiss. That's why the disciples, when they heard Jesus, realized we need to learn how to pray. I find that verse so interesting to think about those disciples hearing the Son of God labor in prayer. I'll bet it was an experience. And as soon as he had finished, <clears throat> Lord, could you teach us how to pray? Like John taught his disciples, and that's why we teach on prayer. Luke 11 and verse 1. I want you to look at one example that we read this morning and see it again. I could see that it had effect on some of you. I want to renew that effect and have it on the rest of you. Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. For the future of your family, for the future of our nation, I mean, should we all join the John Birch Society? Is that going to help our nation? How much has it helped in the last 30 years? Can prayer help? Listen, why has God preserved this place so long? I believe somebody's been praying somewhere for this nation. 20 years ago, it looked worse than it does today. In some respects, not in others. And I believe we can preserve this nation through our prayers unless it's reached a place of no return and even then God will have mercy on us in the midst of it. Right. Remember what it said in Jeremiah 15.1 and Ezekiel 14.14? 14, 14, Although I'll not spare the nation for those five men, I'll spare them. Now that, that's the bottom side. The, the, the bottom side, the risk of your venture into the world of prayer is that you get preserved. The upside potential of this deal or this investment opportunity, and it truly is that, is you can change a nation. Those are not empty words. I look at your eyes and I realize I'm fighting against 20th century Christians and it's not you. It's what I'm fighting in our inability to see the God of the Bible anymore. You can change a nation, let alone your few kids, if you pray effectually and fervently. And I believe that. I could get up here if we believed in personal testimonies and tell you more stories than would take from now until 10 if I was brief on what God has done for this pitiful man through prayer. And if I opened the floor up, the rest of you could tell things that God has done for you. And if you can't think of things God has done for you, you really need this series. God does things for men. What a change He brought in my life. And it wasn't just because of my prayers, it was because of a mother that prayed for me. And if you don't think, when I read 
Psalm 87. I don't think when I read about handmaid, about the handmaid I had, you're wrong. Because when I walked out of a house at the age of 16, telling my mother I hated her to her face, and telling my father he didn't need to hand me that Bible because where I was going I wouldn't have any need of God's Word. Who knew what was going to happen to me after that? But that woman, my mother, prayed for me. And let me tell you something. I couldn't care less that she didn't know about grace at that point because she worshipped the God of the Bible to the light of her understanding her prayers were as effectual as any prayer that ever came from the church at Galatia. I am so sick about hearing the words doctrine of grace as if that is some criteria for true religion. It is no more of a criteria for true religion than full support of the ministry, than immersion in water. I almost broke my mother's heart and my father's A minister with a son behaving that way takes some hope, parents. (laughs) But my mother prayed, and I'll tell you, for the two or three months that I lived 3,000 miles away in the state of Washington, I was the most miserable piece of human flesh (laughs) that ever polluted this world and came home in my right mind, realizing that the pig pen wasn't a very nice place to be. And that mother was there, and she prayed for me. Now, I am not one. I'm not a tear-jerking preacher that talks about mamas all the time, am I? But I want to tell you something. That mother helped save my life. And to deny that is to deny the existence of prayer, and to deny the existence of prayer and its power is to deny my ministry, and we might as well quit. I wouldn't be here if people hadn't prayed for me. I wish all of you understood what you could accomplish. You think there's problems with your spouse? Why don't you wrestle with God about it? You think you've got some problems in not knowing the Scriptures or having temptations spiritually that plague you and you wish you could overcome them? Have you ever wrestled with God over them? You say, yes, I did one night, and the next day nothing happened. That That is not effectual prayer, but how often do we think that way? I know you people think that way. How do I know that? We're all impatient when it comes to the Lord performing these miraculous changes in our lives. I caused my parents grief for that many years. And they prayed for me that many years. I know of ministers that prayed for me during those five years every day by name. And they didn't know enough about the doctrine of salvation to entertain your five-year-old child. But they believed in the God of the Bible to the light of their understanding. They were not going against something they had been told and didn't know. I mean, something they'd been told and were rebelling against it. 
They believed that God answered prayer. But experience, unless it's experience recorded in the Bible, really ought to be filtered out. See, all of us can look in our lives and realize we, we may know people who have prayed for us. We may know things that we've prayed for that we saw changes made. The reason I don't get it, go into those things very often, like never, is because our faith cannot be built on that experience. I could prove anything by my experience if I presented my experience in the right way. We go into the Bible and look at the experiences that God verified and confirmed. Who cares if my mama prayed for me when you boil it right down? We've got to look at the Bible and see that men and women prayed for things in the Bible and God verified their prayers as being prayers that made it to His throne room and as prayers that He answered. The example I never want you to forget Relative to prayer, I know I don't want you to forget James 5.16, but I don't want you to forget Genesis chapter 32 beginning at verse 24. Mm. Genesis 32 and verse 24, relative to prayer, if you can pray this way, you're praying effectually and fervently. And Jacob was left alone. Where? What's the circumstances? He's going to meet Esau, his brother. He is scared. He's got big family problems. What's his big family problem? The last time he heard Esau say anything was as soon as mom and dad die, I'm going to kill you. Why? <laughs> Jacob stole his blessing. Do you remember? Now he's going to meet Esau and he is scared. He divides his company and he prays. Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And friends, that wrestling is prayer. How do I know that? Because of the next verses. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is the man or the angel or the Lord. Let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, and here's the proof that it's a prayer, except thou bless me. You say, well, it doesn't say the word prayer. What is a prayer? But asking for God's blessing. Prayer is not some esoteric word describing some occult mystery whereby we go into some dark room, light candles, and put on certain robes and go through some ritual. Prayer is speaking with the divine being. Prayer is talking to God. And here, this is an angel. When was the last time you read about an angel blessing anyone? Jacob knew that it was God. And he's asking for a blessing and I'm not going to let you go. This is wrestling in prayer. Verse 27, And he, that is the man, or the angel, or the Lord, whatever you want to call him here, because he's, he's called all three in the context, he said, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. And every time you read the word Israel in your Bibles, I hope from this day forward you'll remember why that word is there instead of Jacob. Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, 
and hast prevailed. Do I set God up high in this congregation? That God that I try to set up high said of a man, a weak, timid, frightened man, Thou hast power with me. Thou hast prevailed with me. If that doesn't get a hold of you, you are beyond getting a hold of. The God that this Bible presents said, Jacob has power with me. Jacob can get me to intervene on his account. Jacob can prevail against me. You say, well, God could have whipped Jacob. Come on. Look at the lesson. I know that. The lesson is that there is through prayer the means by which we can prevail with God. I have told you before, a mental picture sometimes helps me in praying. And that is to envision, I've got this man, this angel. I've told you, haven't I? I've got a hold of his ankles. And they're going to have to pry him from my cold fingers before I'm going to let God go. And for anybody who ever walks by my office, when I'm praying, many times you will find me with my hands wrapped around certain parts of my chair, pretending that very thing, that I've got that man. And I'm not going to let him go until he blesses me. And I'm not trying to set myself up as an example for prayer. I'm trying to make Genesis 32 very practical and applicable. I want you to get down and pretend you're flexing yourself for the Lord and you're going to take him down. And I say, you know, I mean that respectfully, but I mean, God said, thou hast power with me and hast prevailed. And what did Esau do? <laughs> Fell in love with his brother. Fell in love with his brothers. Keep your gitless. Jacob, Jacob gave him everything. I mean, you wouldn't, we'll get to that. It's part of praying. You don't just pray without working. <laughs> Jacob did some wise things, too, sending all these gifts, one after another, to appease Esau. But when Esau met him, they hugged, they embraced, they wept. And Esau said, I don't want any of your gifts. I've got so much, Brother Jacob, I don't need anything. Keep it all for yourself. God totally changed the heart of Esau from the way it had been when those two separated. That's a family. Don't, don't let this thing get out of the practical realm. That's a family. You say, I've got a child rebelling against me. I've got a brother that I've been in enmity with for 10 years. My parents have never forgiven me for something. Right here is a lesson for family situations. See, Jacob didn't ask for a million dollars. He didn't ask for a Fleetwood brome in the driveway. He was scared to death to meet his brother. And God smoothed the whole thing over like you wouldn't believe. I mean, every little detail. Esau didn't even want to travel with, they just separated company and Jacob was happy with that. 
even though they were happy, even though they loved each other and forgave each other, Jacob was happy to be alone and things worked out fine. That's an example I want you to remember. When I say effectual fervent prayer, I'm talking about wrestling with God and not letting him go. When God says, let me go, you say, no, I will not let you go until you bless me. Now, this was all night. This was all night until the breaking of the day. Sometimes you may have to wrestle with God for years. You say, well, if I've got to do it for years, it's just not worth it. Well, then whatever the need is in your life must not be very important because God wants that kind of commitment sometimes. Jacob must have put forth quite a struggle that night. God may let you spread yours out over time. One's time, one's effort. And God has his purpose in that too, to test and build your faith. We looked at four others this morning. Moses, meek Moses, calling for God to show a new sign in Israel that he was God's man, and God did. Short prayer, big sign. Joshua, when fighting the Amorites, called for the sun and the moon to stand still in their courses. And so he got to fight for an extra day and still call it the same day for one whole day. That was quite a day of fighting. We looked at Samson, though a fool, though in trouble because of his foolishness, begged God for strength one last time. And the little lad led him to the pillars on which the temple of the Philistines stood, and he pulled it down. And in his death was more victorious than in his life. God gave him an answer to a short prayer, even though he was in his straits because of his own foolishness. That ought to be comforting. But the point I'm going after is that prayer can accomplish things. We looked at Hannah, a childless mother who wanted children and was plagued by her adversary Peninnah, and the Lord gave her how many sons? Total? Four. How many daughters? Two. How many more does a mother want? Most of you are happy with less than that. Exceeding abundant, above all that we can ask or think. God praise his holy name. And Hannah sure did. One of the finest prayers in the Bible is 1 Samuel 2, the first 10 verses, from a woman's mouth. Oh, does she lift up the God we worship. Let me tell you, if you want to hear how a good woman prays, read 1 Samuel 2. Let's go to 1 Kings now. I want, I'm, we, I'm giving examples because if I can't encourage you that there is hope in prayer, and remember, that's what the Scriptures are given for. Otherwise, we neglect the Old Testament. We ought to read it. It's there to build hope. And when you get down and wrestle with God, I want you to believe there's hope before daybreak. <laughs> there's hope that you're going to get what you're praying for. It may not be daybreak as we know it in a 24-hour period, but by daybreak, I mean when God is through testing your wrestling ability. 1 Kings chapter 3. David has died and Solomon is king. I know you're familiar with this, but God put it here for remembrance. Verse 5. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. Now, I want to stop right there. 
It is easy to think, well, Solomon sure had it great, didn't he? The Lord said, ask what I shall give thee. He has said the same to us. Ask, and it shall be given you. I wish you could all see what we have in the New Testament. God did not deal with all men in the Old Testament like He's poured out His Spirit upon all flesh in the New Testament. That statement to Solomon is nothing more than every one of you men, women, and children have under the New Testament. Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child, I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. Oh, I love those words. The speech pleased the Lord. This is a speech we'll be back to. What pleased the Lord in this speech? Getting ahead of myself, but thanksgiving, praise, and a request according to the will of God. Very simple. Praise, thanksgiving, humility, and a request according to the will of God. Is wisdom something that is God's will for His people to seek? We all know that. Was Solomon humble here? I am but a little child and don't know how to do it. Did he praise? He lifted up God for having blessed his father David and had giving him the throne. Thanksgiving? Lord, you showed favor to my father David. I'd like some of that in wisdom. The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him in verse 11, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. Every fairy tale that we've read when someone was given three wishes, if you're halfway intelligent naturally, the first thing you asked for is long life so that you can enjoy the next two wishes for quite a while. I mean, that makes sense, doesn't it? And that's why God immediately goes after the fact that, Solomon, you didn't ask for long life. You didn't ask for riches, and you didn't ask to whip up on all of your enemies. You asked for wisdom 
so that you could be righteous. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And he did. And does the Lord give exceeding abundantly again above all that we can ask or think? Long life, riches, honor. He had no enemies all his day. Solomon didn't war. David was the one that did all the fighting. Solomon did the building. And he had the wisdom. You say, well, that's in the Old Testament. That's why we're going through this. Ask what I shall give thee. Old Testament. Ask and it shall be given you. New Testament. Solomon prayed for wisdom, and God said, I'm pleased with what you requested. The New Testament says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. You want to know how to pray according to the will of God? I'll give you one clue. Pray for wisdom. And we all need it. We all need it to discern between good and bad. Good speech, bad speech. Ever had a problem wondering what to say? ever had a problem with what you said good and bad behavior should I go there should I not go there good and bad thoughts what should I think about that person evil could be about an enemy about another woman whatever where should I limit my thoughts words deeds all oh, for to, to have wisdom to know how to behave prudently in any circumstance pray for it I know God will honor that he did right here. And I know he wants you to pray for that. We'll not turn to Elijah. What did Elijah pray for? He prayed that it might not rain. And how long did it not rain? Three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And it rained. Quite a storm. He had to gird up his loins to make it back to Jezreel in time. You can read in 1 Kings about the, the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th chapters. Did Jonah ever pray? Did you ever feel like you've got yourselves in a fix sometimes because of your foolishness? Can prayer bail you out of those situations? Look at Jonah. There's hardly any pity in our hearts for the man, is there? I mean, he fled from God. He deserved it. But he cried to the Lord out of the belly of that whale. You can read it. Chapter 2 of Jonah. Oh, he begged God for mercy. He said, I don't like it down here, these billows and waves going over me. You know it was rot. He was in a mess, literally, wasn't he? For three days and three nights, laying down there with the seaweed and everything else that whales eat. Can you imagine? You know what it's like when gastric juices sometimes make it up to the back of your throat. How would you like to spend three days and three nights in such a situation? And the fish vomited Jonah out. Out of the belly of that whale, God heard the prayer of Jonah. And Jonah had his prayer answered. And again, I'll give you hope. Why was he there? His own foolishness. God is merciful, tender, of great compassion. And he remembers that we are dust. The Lord pities his children. He knows we're going to make mistakes. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1. 
Habakkuk chapter 1. This is a national problem. Last Sunday I threatened you with it, but we were out of time. This Sunday I'll get it. Habakkuk chapter 1. I don't know about you. I know about some of you. When you read the newspaper and you watch television, your veins stand out, your heartbeat picks up, and you get frustrated. That's a godly response as long as it's kept in control. Habakkuk had the same response. Verse 1, the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see. Here's his prayer. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry and thou wilt not hear? Even cry unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slack and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore, wrong judgment proceedeth. Isn't that the state of affairs in America right there in those verses? God, how long are you going to let this go on? Why are you letting me see all this? I've been praying against it. I've been preaching against it. The situation of a nation. The answer is in verse 5. Behold... Ye among the heathen. Habakkuk, take a look among the heathen. And regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which ye will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. And I'll not read the rest, but it's just describing the terror of the Chaldeans upon the nation of Israel. A prayer. God, this country's a mess. What are you going to do about it? There's no judgment anymore. There's no justice. The law is slack. That means no one's really preaching the word anymore. The law is slack. Verse 5. I'll do something that you'll wonder marvelously at. God hears prayer. Now, when we pray for our nation, you know, it's difficult when you live in the nation. You want to pray for God's judgment upon it, but at the same time, we're supposed to be praying that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. Difficult. But the Lord can arrange things so that you can be protected, and He can still punish those that are guilty of the crimes Mentioned here, a prayer for a nation, God's answer right there. Habakkuk got to hear the name of the nation given to him specifically. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. You've heard about that, a little nation to that point. You've heard about that bitter and hasty nation. Now they're coming and they're going to destroy Israel. Come over to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, now we're into the New Testament where people don't pray much anymore. Luke chapter 2, and you know I don't mean that. At least there was one woman that did. Verse 36 of Luke 2, Jesus Christ has been, has been brought to the temple for circumcision. He's there with Mary, and he's there with Joseph, 
and he's there with Simeon. And Simeon has blessed them in verses 34 and 35. And we take up reading in verse 36, And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. And that's all we know about Anna. What do we know about her? She was married for seven years. She was 84 years old. Been a long time. She was 84 years old or 84 years from her, the death of her husband. It appears most likely to be her age. But she dwelled in that temple and did not depart from it, but day and night wrestled with God in prayer. This is a widow indeed. When you get over there to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and you read about widows that ought to be supported by the church, they're widows who dedicate themselves to good works. This is one right here. See, she's given it. Her husband's dead. Many women after their husband dies have no desire for another husband. They can give themselves wholly to the things of the Lord. And this woman did. Or the blessing that God gave her for her diligent service. At that instant, Jesus Christ came in. She recognized him as the source of the redemption for Israel. She thanked God for him and spoke to all those that were there. She had an opportunity to see Jesus Christ just like Simeon did and understand what was embodied in that little child as a result of being dedicated to prayer. She was a woman who prayed and fasted day and night and God blessed her. And that's all we're told about her. Look at Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. Sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot of wrestling with God. God knows what's best. Do you believe that? That's a hard thing to admit. But when God takes a long time answering one of your prayers, it's because that is the best thing for you. If He answered it too quickly, it wouldn't build your faith as much as it would if He took a while. If you believe God knows what is best for you. Well, here's a man that didn't have to pray long. And if you want some hope, Look at this. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. We'll begin. And one of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Now this isn't a very long prayer. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I don't have an hour tonight to try to make you visualize that thief hadn't probably lived a very good life. He was at the last moment of his life. 
He's hanging on a cruel cross, realizing he is suffering the just desert of his deeds. And he utters this short prayer, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And he didn't have to wrestle till the breaking of day. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, of a truth, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Oh, what an answer. What an answer to a short prayer. You say, if he ended up in paradise, he was one of God's elect, and his name was written before the foundation of the world. If you even think that thought, let's close our Bibles and go home because all of God's decrees have been written in a book from before the foundation of the world. His name wasn't written there in the foreknowledge of him making that prayer. But I'll tell you one thing. When I meet the moment of death, I want to have words like that ringing in my ears. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Listen, I could take death on with a grin on my face with words like that. What a prayer. Notice a few things, although this is not my purpose right now. Notice a few things about his prayer. Does he fear God? Yes. Does he understand justice? Yes. Does he acknowledge that he's a sinner? Yes. Does he acknowledge that Jesus Christ is righteous? Yes. Does he lay any claim on Christ remembering him, or does he beg? Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And that man was there. Jesus said it. He was there. There's a prayer and an answer. Acts chapter 10, we read that Cornelius prayed always. Can you imagine Cornelius, a child of God, devout and sincere, great zeal, but he didn't know that his sins had been paid for. Can you imagine being convicted for your sins and not knowing that Jesus Christ had put them away? What kind of praying you do? That's why it said he prayed always, <laughs> looking for that forgiveness, that comfort, that knowledge of knowing that his sins had been put away. Realizing that before God, he didn't stand a chance. And he prayed, and an angel came and told him, Send for one Simon Peter. He'll tell thee what thou oughtest to do. There came the message of the gospel. How many of us in our past have sat in churches and realized we weren't worshiping God properly? We could sit there while the preacher was rattling away, flip through our Bibles and see thing after thing that was in error. We'd go home. We'd talk about it with our wives. We'd complain. We were in bitter agony. God, show me the truth. Let me find a church that preaches and practices the truth. He even let me preach it. Isn't it exciting? You don't think about it. That's what Cornelius received, the knowledge of the truth. He knew about Jesus Christ, the doctrine of baptism, and what he ought to do to please God. 
and that Christ had put away his sins. I know the experience of many of you, and you've prayed for God to show you the truth. Has he showed you the truth? I hope from time to time he hears that you're thankful for the favor he's shown you. You know how many people there are in America tonight? There are 240 million. Do you want to make a wager on how many of them have what you have when it comes by wager, I mean an estimate of how many of them have what you have in the way of understanding of this book. That overwhelms me. That overwhelms me. The more I deal with people, the more ignorant I realize they are and what we have right here. I hope you're thankful. If I ever get in trouble, I want you to do what Acts chapter 12 tells us. Pray, pray. Don't come and try to break me out when there's four quaternion of Roman soldiers keeping me. Pray, pray. Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, when Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, it pleased the Jews so much he decided he'd try Peter also. And intending to wait until till Easter had passed, he put him in prison, delivering him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. This is the fourth verse of the twelfth chapter of Acts. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but, and that is the biggest but, even a, the big, a bigger but than the Roman Empire, but prayer was made for 45 minutes that evening of the church unto God for him. It's actually intimidating, isn't it? When you keep reading about Anna's all day and night, Jacob all night, Cornelius all way, prayer meeting without ceasing. It's intimidating, isn't it? We fall rather short, don't we? Well, you know what happened there. The chains fell off. Peter got up. Sixteen poor Roman soldiers didn't wake up. They woke. They died the next day. The gate opened by itself, and he walked into the city. He went to the prayer meeting. And the one bad thing about that prayer meeting is when he knocked there at the gate, and it's a pitiful story. It's pitiful. They sent a little damsel out there to check on who was beating the door down. Peter told, it, told, told her who he was. And he went back in. They didn't believe it. Now, there was a lack of faith there, but when God pulls something like that, God also understands. God also understands. Now, see, God could see that in advance, couldn't he? Did God know that in advance? He still granted the blessing as a result of that prayer meeting. They were in the middle of the prayer meeting when he arrived, middle of the night. Soldiers were sleeping. It wasn't from 7 until 7.45. Soldiers don't sleep between 7 and 7.45. Those are some examples of prayer. Does God answer prayer? He surely does. Old Testament, New Testament. Jews, Gentiles. God answers prayer. Look at Matthew chapter 7. 
I want to give you some promises of God's answers to prayer. Matthew chapter 7, this is one of my favorites. One of my favorites. I'm sorry for wearing out a few English words. That one came out without me even thinking about it. Many times I do it intentionally. But they are my favorites. Matthew chapter 7. You know verse 7. You all know it by heart. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that seek, asketh receiveth. And he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. I mean, it's an automatic. If you'll ask and seek and knock, I'll give it to you. Why do you think I'm going to withhold? Now here's how he goes on. Or what man is there of you? Whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now listen, are there any men here that if your son came to you in integrity and honesty and fervency and said, Dad, could I have a piece of bread? How many of us would hand him a stone? Listen, we'd get him a loaf of... We'd, go, we'd take him to Krispy Kreme, wouldn't we? We'd get him a loaf of bread. We'd put peanut butter and jelly on it for him. We wouldn't give him a stone. That is obvious, isn't it? Well, Christ is trying to draw an obvious lesson from nature. You wouldn't treat your son that way. Listen, when my wife brings Daniel into my office and he sees me for the first time that day and he smiles, I reach for my car keys. I mean, the guy's got me. You know, I hold my car keys out to him. Take it, anything, half the kingdom. Why? I love my sons and daughter. When they come and ask me for something and they know that if they come and look daddy in the eye and ask for something, poor daddy's a big marshmallow most of the time. Oh, sometimes he'll make him ask twice or three times. And Do I have an example from that by our Heavenly Father? Just to see how sincere they are. But oh, it's a pleasure to give when our sons ask, isn't it? The lesson is this. You wouldn't do that. And you know what God thinks of you as fathers? Rotten. Look at the next verse. Verse 11. If ye then, being evil, that's what I mean by rotten, if ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask Him? What can be said to explain those verses. If your son comes to you and you wouldn't give him anything short of what he asked for, you know we'd all try to outdo what he asked for. How much more availeth much? How much more? But if you go to God thinking, I'm asking for this, it's a lot. God can't give me all this. He's probably only going to give me partial. You have already flunked effectual prayer. But that's a, a lesson for another evening or another morning. What I want you to get right here is the promise. I love that promise. I know what I would do for my son. I know what my father did when I would ask him. He was an evil father. 
I'm an evil father, how much more? How much more? Some of you didn't have great fathers. I know that. Look to yourself then as an example or what the Bible sets up as a good father. I mean, David was too good of a father, remember? He never told his son that he, he never even questioned his son about his behavior. How much more? I love those words. How much more? Because I know how I would treat my son. And one of the lessons of effectual prayer is, you better treat your sons well. Do you know why? With the same measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. I hope your sons know that you love them and that you give them things when they ask. God looks at that history when he decides whether he ought to give you what you're asking of him. You want some more promises on prayer? Let's go to Exodus chapter 22. You say, I'm too young. All the six-year-olds in here, raise your hands. There's all the six-year-olds. You were three-year-olds when I came here. You're growing older. Are they only growing older? <laughs> we're all growing older. We have lots of young children in here. Does God hear the prayers of children? Exodus chapter 22. Let's see if God hears the prayers of children. Maybe he only hears the prayers of those that are 20 years and older. Maybe. Maybe not. Exodus chapter 22, verse 22. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely... Hear their cry. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. There is God's promise that when children cry... Did you read the verse? Now, I know you may think I'm a nitpicker, that I like every little word of the Word of God, but I do love every little word of the Word of God. Because God said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. And you know what he said about children? If they cry at all. If they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear them. Now that's swearing when God says it. When he said, surely blessing, I will bless thee, God swore. When he says, I will surely, as sure as I am myself, I will hear their cry when they cry at all in a time of need. You say, well, I'm not a child. I'm just poor. I wonder if God hears the prayer of poor men. I mean, you've told about Abraham, and you've told about Jacob, and you've told about Daniel. They were all important men. Well, let's just keep reading. Exodus 22 and verse 25. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. 
If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, thou shalt deliver it unto him by that the sun goeth down, for that is his covering. Only it is his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. God hears you when you're poor. You know, sometimes you think that only important people, God hears their prayer. Forget it. This is somebody so poor, they've got to come and borrow. And you know what they got to use as collateral? It isn't, a, it isn't a Fleetwood, and it's not a second mortgage. It's a coat. And guess what? His coat is also his bedspread. That's poor. Wouldn't you say? Does God hear? Yes, for I am gracious. Children, you can pray. Listen in 1 Samuel chapter 3 and have your parents read it to you tonight or sometime. The Lord came to Samuel when he was a very young child. That boy was working in the tabernacle in Shiloh when he was five. You say, how do you know he was five? Well, I make these deductions. As soon as he was weaned, he went. And I'm giving Hannah the benefit of the doubt that she nursed him for a long time. Isaac was nursed that long. I know it sounds strange, but just leave it at that. Isaac was nursed for five years, and when he was weaned, when Samuel was weaned, he went to Shiloh. And God came to him and told him some things that he was going to do to Eli. It's the wicked, my friends, that deny the power of prayer. Look at the book of Job. The book of Job, chapter 21. Job chapter 21, we've been in this chapter before. There's not too many chapters we haven't been at in, in in some time, some time or other. Verse 7 will tell us who is under consideration. Job says, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? We're talking about wicked men. How do wicked men look at prayer? Verse 14. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? It's a wicked man that makes a choice against prayer. I mean, it wasn't that these wicked men were necessarily lazy men. They're hardworking men. They work hard. They enjoy life. You can read about them. They build houses. They have flocks. They have children. But they make a choice. It's those things versus prayer. We all make that choice every day, don't we? And too often we make a choice against prayer because we see things at hand that we need to do. I need to go do this. Because if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. We can see it and we can realize that if I invest an hour there, I'm going to whip that problem and I'll have that thing off my mind. But when we do that, we are so short-sighted. We are sacrificing the big picture for some little details. If it comes down to little details slipping in order for you to improve your prayer life, let the little details slip. But one thing I'm sure of in America, you all have enough time to pray the way God is looking for us to pray without letting very many little things slip. 
We of all people ought to be able to spend more time in prayer in certain ways. We work fewer hours. We have more conveniences than ever. We ought to be able to pray. It's a wicked man who says, what profit is there in prayer? What I'm trying to give you this day is that there is profit in prayer. There's profit in prayer by the examples of five men. I want you to be those men. I want you to be those men. I want God to look down and say, I've never had a congregation like that. I've usually only had one at a time. You know, Noah didn't live during the time of Daniel, did he? Job didn't live during the time of Samuel. One man. That's why when you get to Ezekiel chapter 22, it says, And I sought for a man among them to stand in the gap before me for the land. And what did we read this morning about Moses in Psalm 106 and verse 23? He stood in the breach. I sought for a man. I've been over that point, but do you have a hold of it? Do you women have a hold of it? Amen. Don't make it me. Listen. Make it yourself. Make it yourself. Outpray me. Outpray me. I dare you to try. Try to outpray me. What's the worst that can happen? I have a congregation of men that pray more than I do. Wouldn't that be terrible? I want you to be those men. I'm here to try to exhort you to be those men. I'm not just here to be that man myself. I'm here to make you those men and those women. The examples of prayer from Moses to Samson to Solomon to Hannah to Hezek. Oh, I left out the best one. Second Kings chapter 20. Second Kings chapter 20. I can't leave out this one. I can't do it. God, thank you for reminding me of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, 2 Kings chapter 20 and verse 1. Oh, to pray like this. Have, have any of you ever been sick? I know some of you have. And listen, as we get older, it's going to be more frequent. Some of, us, some of you have been in the hospital. Some of you have had illnesses. Some of you have had surgery. Take comfort in this example. 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Now, when a doctor says that, we usually believe it. But when Isaiah says it, you better believe it. Get your house in order, write your will, close up the bank accounts, get the wife to get the money out before you pass away. You're dying. Wouldn't that put a cold chill over you? When the prophet of God says it just that way, verse 2, it didn't take him long. Then he turned his face to the wall and prayed unto the Lord, saying, I beseech thee, O Lord, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. 
And Hezekiah wept sore. Yes, you would too. With that kind of... Every man fears death to some degree. And Hezekiah here is crying bitterly and begging God for mercy. A one-verse prayer. Verse 4, and I love this. And it came... He didn't have to wrestle all night. Listen, he didn't he may not have had the strength to wrestle all night. And it came to pass... Afore, that means before. Before Isaiah was gone out into the middle court, he was in the inner court with the king, before he made it to the middle court, that the word of the Lord came to him saying, Turn again. Turn again. Prayer changes things. Turn again and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer. I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day thou shalt go up unto the house of the Lord. And I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend this city for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. When you are troubled, don't you go, or, don't you go to the doctor alone. You turn your face to the wall and beg God for mercy and weep sorely. That'll have a lot more effect than some new invention of the AMA when God hears someone begging for His mercy. It doesn't really end there. Hezekiah says in verse 8, Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, what shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? I mean, I want a sign that this is for this is for real. This is too good to believe. Exceeding, abundantly, above all that. What did he ask for? Didn't you get what? What did he ask for? Didn't he ask for an extension? What was he thinking about? Living a few more days. The Lord gives it to him, and it's above what he can ask or think. Pitiful, pitiful, just like the prayer meeting in Acts chapter 12. But the Lord understands that we're weak, pitiful creatures. That's why he pities us. Verse 8, what shall be the sign? Verse 9, and Isaiah said, this sign shalt thou have of the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he hath spoken. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees or go back 10 degrees? I mean, there's a sundial laying there beside his bed. And Isaiah says, if you need a sign, what do you want? The shadow to move forward 10 degrees in the sundial or move backward? I love Hezekiah. is rational here. In verse 10, he says, It is a light thing for the shadow to go down 10 degrees. Nay, let's go for the gold. Let the shadow return backward 10 degrees. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord. And here's the second prayer in 11 verses. And Isaiah the prophet cried unto the Lord and he brought the shadow 10 degrees backward by which it had gone down in the dial of Ahaz. May Jesus Christ be praised. He is a prayer answering God. And when any of you are in the hospital or faced with physical maladies, beg God for mercy. The worst that can happen, and I mean the worst that can happen is, He will say to you, My grace is sufficient. You are coming home. That is the worst. Is that true? Above all that you can ask or think. That is the worst. My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in your weakness.
come on home. The best, he'll give you your pitiful request. I guess you'd consider that the best. I mean, actually, the best is the grace to go through that mist of death and be with Jesus Christ. But, I mean, when we have, as Christians, a foundation for our faith that the worst is the best, we have a treasure, inestimable, unmeasurable, infinite, in the God we serve. He is a prayer hearing God. How many of you are going to go wrestle with God for all the needs that we all have? May God bless the preaching of his word.